Again, welcome to you and welcome to those who are uh, joining us online. Researchers have proven what parents probably know instinctively, and that is gratitude doesn't come naturally. In her book, The Gift of Thanks, Margaret Visser cites a study that observed how parents teach their children to say hi, uh, thanks, and goodbye. And what they observed is children spontaneously said hi or hello 27% of the time, bye 25% of the time, and thanks only 7% of the time. And so conversely, they had to be prompted. So uh, parents prompted their kids to say hi 28% of the time, bye 33% of the time, and they had to prompt their kids to say thank you 51% of the time, over half the time when a word of gratitude was uh, appropriate. In conclusion, children had a much more difficult time learning to say thanks. And most children have to learn to say thank you even before they know what it means. She continues, eventually when children have matured and been further educated, they will come to be able to feel the emotion that the words express. The words come first, then the feelings later. And based on this research, she concludes that learning to be thankful has a very steep learning curve. She writes, in our culture, Thanksgiving is believed to be, for most children, the very last of the basic social graces that they acquire. And they have to be brought up to be grateful. She also notes, though, that once we grab it, once we get this spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving, we seldom forget it. And phrases like thank you become so ingrained in us that when almost everything is lost, those uh, words are not forgotten. In the states of aphasia or in people suffering from Alzheimer's, these little phrases stay and they remain even when other memories have long passed. The good news is we can learn the practice of gratitude. That's good news. And the really good news is, as God's people, we have the Holy Spirit at work in us, bringing us to a place of gratitude as we cooperate with the Spirit. Well, as Brian mentioned, today we're continuing our series, Gratitude, the Forgotten Virtue. And last week, uh, we heard this challenge to uh, take a gratitude challenge every single day. And every single day, write down or celebrate in some way something for which or someone for whom uh, you are grateful, and I'm not going to ask you to, to do a show of hands, but let me just continue to encourage you each day to write down something for which you're grateful. And last week we learned that gratitude is really good for our relational health, our emotional health, our physical health, and of course, our spiritual health. And last week, uh, you may remember, I uh, cited a study that said basically gratitude has the opposite effect on the body as stress. So if stress just makes us all tense and all, you know, wound tight, gratitude just has this way of relaxing us and giving us this sense of peace. We focused on cultivating a spirit of contentment, which leads us to a place of gratitude. Today what I'd like for us to do is I'd like for us to consider what it means to have a life that is filled with joy. A life that is filled with joy. Having a joyful spirit is linked to being grateful. And, you know, for the first part of this week, as I meditated upon this subject in this text, I kept asking the question, does gratitude lead to joy? Or does joy lead to gratitude? 
Does gratitude lead to joy or does joy lead to gratitude? And I finally came to the conclusion that it is perhaps that gratitude is an expression of our joy and joy is an expression of our gratitude. I know that sounds like an easy way out. So let me encourage you. I'd love to hear what you have to think about that one uh, question or any other questions you might have and jot me a note. My email address is there on the screen. So before we uh, read our text, uh, let me get a working definition of joy out on the table for us. Joy is the feeling of good pleasure and happiness that is dependent upon who Jesus is rather than who we are or the circumstances around us. Joy is an expression of the fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. In other words, if the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life, an expression of that presence is the spirit and attitude of joy. With this in mind, uh, let's look at our text this morning. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 9. Uh, Peter, the apostles, writing to Christians who were facing all kinds of suffering and persecution. They were scattered around the country we know today as modern-day Turkey. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9. It reads like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed." Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your salvation, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of God for the people of God. N.T. Wright wrote that the opening verses of 1 Peter are both a mouthful and a mindful. And what Peter is doing here in these first nine verses, he's really introducing what he's going to cover for the rest of the letter and the various doctrines he's going to dig into. Now, we're not going to dig into every doctrine in these first nine verses. What I want us to do is I want us to take a look at four words today, four words today that lead us to a depth of joy that then takes us to a place of gratitude. And those words are elect, exiles, hope, and trials, okay? Elect, exiles, hope, and trials. Peter addresses his letter to the elect. The term elect simply means those who are chosen for God's purposes. In the Old Testament, we see that the nation of Israel was God's chosen people, and that's how they're referred to often. Now, under the new covenant in Christ, all those who are followers of Jesus make up the chosen or the elect. 
And maybe you've heard the question before, if, if, you've, if you've studied the Bible occasionally, maybe you've heard the question, does God choose us or do we choose God? You know, does God choose us or do we choose God? And the answer is yes. It's a resounding yes. God, by his grace, prompts us to salvation. And let me just say, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you hear about the gospel of Jesus, that God loves you so much that he sent Christ to die for your sins so that you can be reconciled to God. If you hear the gospel and you begin to feel a stirring in your heart and your mind, that it could very well be God prompting you to a place of salvation. Do not ignore that prompting. God prompts us and we say yes to that prompting. It is a beautiful and wonderful mystery how God's initiating grace intermingles with our free will to bring us to salvation. Here's what I want you to ponder with joy as it relates to this word, elect. God has chosen you in Christ and wants you to choose Him. I have a good friend of mine that I usually see two or three times a year, and he never fails to say to me, Phil, he says, you know what just blows me away? And every time he utters that phrase, I know what's coming next. But I ask him anyway, because I love to hear what he says. And he says simply this, in some form of this, he says, what blows me away is God lets me be in his family and wants me on his team. That God lets me be in his family and God wants me on his team. What a reason for joy. You know, conversely, if you think about it, there are two places, if you go all the way back, some of you have to go way back, but if you go all the way back to those maybe middle school or high school years, and you, if you think about it, the most difficult moments in that experience or places would be, first of all, the school cafeteria, right? The school cafeteria, you go to the cafeteria and you hope someone will sit with you or you hope you have people that you can sit with. Actually, adults never outgrow this either. Go to retirement community and who is sitting with whom is a big deal. The table represents our relationships. They represent a sense of family. The table represents people accepting us and wanting to spend time with us. And if you're a new kid in school, you're hoping and praying as you journey toward the cafeteria that someone will invite you to sit with them. Hear the good news today. God has invited you to his salvation feast. God has invited you to sit at his table for all eternity. One of the most beautiful descriptions of salvation is that of a banquet feast. And God wants you at the table. And then there is that other place, the playground. Anybody remember those days when the teacher would say, okay, Hank, Brian, start picking your team." And they would arm wrestle or flip a coin to see who would pick first. Does anybody remember those days? I'm not going to ask you who got picked first, and I'm not going to ask you who got picked last. But it is an excruciating time and moment. And if you were not picked, or if you were picked last, you feel left out and left off. Hear the good news. It is good news of great joy God wants you on his team. 
God wants you to be a part of His holy purposes in the world. Which brings us to our second word, and that's the word exile. Now you may be wondering, how in the world does exile have to do with joy? What does exile have to do even with God's holy purposes? The term exiles is used of Christians in the New Testament to describe how our citizenship is both here on earth in the country in which we live, but it is also in heaven, which is our ultimate and our eternal home. Some translations may say strangers, some may say foreigners or aliens, and this may sound like a strange concept as exiles, but let me just unpack it for a bit. When you become a Christian, Christ becomes your leader, your life leader in every area. He is Lord over your relationships, your gifts, your talents, your hobbies, your work life, your family life, your finances, your relationships, you name it, how you treat others. You take on his values, his priority, his purposes, his identity in the world. You begin in the way you behave and interact in the world around you. You begin to look like Jesus to the world. That's amazing. That's an incredible purpose. It's an incredible identity. His rule and reign is where your heart lies. His kingdom and His kingdom work and His kingdom expansion around the world is what makes your heart beat as a Christian. It is your ultimate relational allegiance. I love this country. I know that you love this country and the country in which you were born if you weren't born in this country. And as much as you and I love this country, our ultimate allegiance is not to this government, and it is not to this country. Our ultimate allegiance, our first allegiance, is with Jesus and His kingdom. We are citizens of heaven. We're citizens of His kingdom and we receive all the rights and the privileges and the joys of heaven. We're forgiven. We're liberated. We're reconciled to God. We're one with Him. And we live here. And we still have an earthly citizenship. So spiritually speaking, it is like we're exiles here. Spiritually speaking, we, we walk through life in this country and in, in other countries. It's not just unique to this country, but we walk through life and we interact with life as we're citizens of another. As we're citizens of another. And that is where our allegiance lies. And this gives us great purpose, which gives us deep and lasting joy. As exiles, we are to live like ambassadors or representatives of Jesus in this world. He has chosen us to be on His team and to bring about His kingdom ways and His kingdom values on earth as it is in heaven. If you're an ambassador in this country from another country, you represent the values of your country here. As an ambassador of Jesus and citizen of another kingdom, you represent the values and the ways of Jesus here. And that gives us great 
joy. You know, there's nothing that sucks the joy out of life more than not having a purpose to live for. But man, when you have one, you just light up. You light up with joy. Uh, Most of you, all of you probably know, I absolutely love the world of dogs. Let me offer another analogy from the world of dogs. Different dogs have different purposes for which they are bred. A hound is bred to follow a scent. A retriever is bred to retrieve things. We once had a West Highland White Terrier. Uh, His name was Skipper. Uh, That's not a picture of Skipper, but that looks exactly like him. And Skipper is fluffy and white, or he was fluffy and white. And when you see a Westie, you'll see that. They just look like you're going to cuddle them up. But I'm going to tell you right now, that is a born, trained killer. He wants, and maybe I've told you this story before, I can't remember. But he wants, when we were living in Richmond, he tore off of our back deck. He flew down the stairs. He was chasing this vole or something, like a vole. And he didn't get it. He chased it into the downspout that was coming off, off the gutter, right? And so what, what West Holland White Terriers do to, to, to disorient their prey is then he just started barking as loud as he could in, in, in that gutter. So it's just echoing. And finally the vole comes. I know people like that who just bark all the time until they disorient you. But anyway, that's another story. Um, but anyway, he barked and barked and barked and barked and barked. Then the thing came out. He grabbed it by the neck and I'll stop there. And then he just looks at me, tail wagging, right? I'm looking at the gutter that's just been, t- by the way, he tore the downspout off the house, getting the thing out. No, I'm not kidding. But his tail's just wagging. Because that's what he was born for. That was his purpose. You were born again in Christ for the purpose of representing Jesus in this world. And I don't know about you, but that brings great joy. And I'm so grateful to be a part of his team and to be included in his holy purposes. There's hope. It's a third word. Peter writes, we've been given a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. This is the message we celebrate at Easter. This is the message of the resurrection. Death doesn't win the day. Death doesn't have the final word. And this salvation hope leads to this, I love how Peter says this, inexpressible. You can't even express it. Maybe it's why we sing for joy, right? It's just so hard for us to express. But he says this inexpressible and glorious joy. And because Christ has conquered death, we have this living hope. This means that in him, we are never hopeless. You can have your worst day, month, week, or year And in Him, there's hope. And get this. Just pick this one piece up. Is that this salvation hope is an inheritance that never loses value. It's an inheritance that will never lose value. Peter writes, it will never perish. It will never spoil. It will never fade. Once you have been grasped, By the hand of God in faith, once you have been adopted into the family of God, your inheritance is secure for all eternity. It will not lose its value. I have a friend of mine who lives in another city. He's a retired executive from from a major company, and he retired in his mid-50s. And he told me once, he said, Phil, when I retired, 
it was the first year was absolutely miserable. It was absolutely miserable. And I said, well, why? It seems like you'd be, you know, have all your projects and everything. And he said it was miserable because I woke up one morning and realized, okay, other than, than, than what he earned in the stock market, he realized, okay, I'm never going to earn more and that I have this nest egg to retire on and basically, however long I live, I'm just going to watch it get smaller and smaller and smaller. And he said for the first year, he was just glued to the stock market. And he said, that's miserable. You can't live like that. And finally, he, he did business with it. He made peace with it. And uh, I think he's, he's still doing fine. But we know. We know things like our physical assets, portfolio, home value, or whatever. We know it's finite. And it's dependent upon our ability to earn and to save. It is dependent on market forces and our ability to manage the global economy, all that. We can try to be confident, but there are no guarantees. But the salvation of your soul, the inheritance that awaits you, that will live on for all eternity, just does not depend on market forces. It does not depend on your ability to earn nor anything else. It is secured by the cross of Jesus and by the hand of God. It's an inheritance that will never, never fade, diminish, spoil. That's another reason for joy. It's another reason to be thankful. So we have joy in being chosen for God's family and to be on God's team. We have joy as a purpose, as God's agents in the world. We have the joy of salvation, hope, and an inheritance that never fades. And then there's this last word here for us today. There's so much more in these verses. This last word for today, trials. Trials. This entire letter was written to Christians facing all kinds of suffering, trials, and persecution. Peter reminded them of yet another cause for joy. Remember, joy is the deep pleasure and happiness that depends on Jesus and is not dependent on your external circumstances. He writes here that when we face trials, we can rejoice because in these trials, though challenging as they may be, our faith is being strengthened. It's being refined. If we submit to the work of God through the Holy Spirit during these times, will be made stronger, and it will ultimately result in praise to God. But if we don't submit in faith to God and trust when we're experiencing trials, then sometimes they can lead us to be bitter, or they can lead us to be spiritually timid or weak. And so again, there's that intermingling of how God works in our, our free wills. We lift even our trials up to Him and rejoice that God, no matter what happens, I know you're going to work. I know you're going to make me stronger. Tim Keller wrote, let me read it. Do you remember when your mother used to say, don't eat candy before meals, he wrote? Why did she say that? Because she knew it would ruin your next meal. The trouble with eating candy is it gives you a sugar buzz, and then you don't feel hungry. Candy masks the fact that you need proteins and vitamins. The sugar buzz from candy makes you hunger for real nutrients that you don't have. Things like power, money, and success, as well as favorable circumstances, 
act like spiritual sugar. Christians who have these spiritual candies may say, sure, I believe in God, and I know I'm going to heaven, but they are actually basing their joy on day to day on favorable circumstances. When the circumstances change, it drives us to God because when the sugar disappears, we hunger for the depth of God. So even these trials and sufferings create within us a hunger that can pull us even deeper into the life of the Lord. In these times, God uses these times to turn us toward Him and drive us to crave an even deeper intimacy in Him. In many ways, as individuals and as a congregation, the last 20 months have been a trial. Our routine has been toppled. Our ways of engaging one another and our neighbors have had to be reset, and renewed, and adjusted. The pandemic brought to us a focus that which was important. I remember early on, our son was living with us, but our daughter was not in our bubble. And early on in the pandemic, it was, it was really painful. She would come over and we'd visit at the, at the you know, six feet distance outside and we even had her birthday party. We planned to have her birthday out back in, in, the, in the courtyard, but it was raining, so we had to do it at you know, distance in the fellowship hall. And I so long just to, just to wrap my arms around my daughter and give her a hug. This is painful. And I know some of you, I've heard some of your stories this, suggesting the same thing. As a congregation, I personally long to hear people sing. Even Pastor Brian, who if you ever stand by him, it is, a, it is an experience. I longed to receive people at the table and share in the bread and the cup. It was most painful to say goodbye to some of our friends. I remember saying goodbye to Jim and Jan Burns, standing at a distance right there in the, in the foyer. This is a picture of a, of a different place. That was hard, wasn't it? Yet in those moments, painful as they were, I knew God was working just knew it. I knew God was shaping and refining and preparing us as individuals in a congregation for what He has for us next. And most importantly, to represent Him at every single turn, even in the midst of trials. And that brings me, and I hope it brings you, great and glorious joy. God will not waste painful, hard circumstances. He will not waste these difficult times through which we travel. He will use them to strengthen and refine our faith. So we find joy in being part of God's family and on His team. We find joy in representing God in the world. We find joy in the hope of our salvation that will not fade or perish. And we find joy knowing that even in the hard times, God is working. And I hope and I pray that this joy leads you to thanks. May that which makes you thankful lead you to great and lasting joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, we do give you thanks for the joy of salvation. It is so, so incredible, so glorious, so inexpressible as Peter wrote. It's just hard to put in words. We just barely touched the tip of the iceberg 
of the joy that we have in you. Thank you, God. Thank you for the gift of joy. May we take these moments, these seasons, these experiences, even the hard things, Lord, and turn them into praise of inexpressible joy and thanksgiving to you. God, may we take what it means to be in your family and on your team and be grateful and joyful to you. Lord, thank you most of all for the joy we have in our salvation through Jesus. And may we live with grateful, joyful hearts, ready to do his work in the world that you so deeply love.